I just thought meditation wasn't for me. But when my friend showed me a guided way, I was like, mm-hmm. what? And it can be secular. And so I started going to a meditation studio um, in New York City called Mindful, which I got to sit with the most incredible teachers in New York. I got you know, certified eventually to become a meditation teacher and almost immediately saw the benefits to my writing practice, my flow, my focus. But also the way that I like to think about it is, is it helps me elegantly as much as I can navigate those ups and downs of the creative life. You're listening to the Wise Women Podcast, Season 4, Episode 141. I'm your host, Alicia Wilfert, founder of Yoke and Abundance, coach to entrepreneurs, creatives, and seekers. This podcast introduces you to women on their journey to flourishing businesses and lives. In today's episode, I'm sharing my conversation with author Heather Demetrius. Welcome back, darling. I myself am back in Greensboro after last week's trip to Austin, and it has been a full-on week of intensive client work, and I have to dish just for a moment about how much I love my job, my work, this work I get to do. I mean, first of all, I get to show up and talk to you each week. Thank you for listening. That's an honor. And also, I'm working with some really amazing women who are going through some life transitions. They are really doing some incredible things. They're building foundations to make career changes, to write books, to heal what's holding them back, and build businesses. So between my one-on-one coaching, my raw group, and the business deep dives I've been doing to help clients launch courses and create new go-to-market sales strategies, it's really been a whirlwind week, and I'm just so excited to get to do it. So listen, if any of that sounds like something you need to, I am here for you. Just schedule a 30-minute free discovery call with me. I'm dropping the scheduling link in the show notes. So whether you're in a big life transition or building and pivoting your business, listen, I've got you covered. Do not do it alone. I cannot stress that enough. I promise you, you will go further, faster with a coach. So what are you waiting for? Go check out my scheduling link in the show notes when you're done listening. Now, on to this week's guest. And I know every week I tell you I'm so excited, and it's true. I get so excited. I am honored to talk to the amazing women I get to talk to, like this week's guest, Heather Demetrius. She recently published um, a nonfiction book called Codename Badass, It is next on my reading list. I can't wait. But listen, I'm just excited for you to meet Heather. She is a critically acclaimed author, writing coach, and certified meditation teacher. She has an MFA in writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts and is a recipient of the Penn America Susan P. Bloom Discovery Award for her debut novel, Something Real. She has written oodles of books, YA, fiction, nonfiction. She's really amazing and she's got lots of awards to her name as well. And you're going to hear from her after a word 
from our sponsor. Calling all purpose-driven female entrepreneurs with stories to share with this world. I want you to meet my friend, Abby Gibb, who also happens to be an Emmy award-winning journalist turned business and media mentor. She's helped women like you build million dollar businesses around their personal story and become best-selling authors and land TEDx talks in months. She's currently offering a special for this Yoke and Abundance community on her number one media marketing course, the Media Visibility Accelerator. It is a six module course for purpose-driven entrepreneurs who want to scale their business to 25K per month and scale their message into a global movement. This is the program your soul craves and your bank account deserves. Check out the link in today's show notes. Now, on to today's show. Oh, very busy, many things. Um, I like to say, as Walt Whitman says, I contain multitudes. So um, <laughs> I am an author, uh, primarily. That is my main job. I write uh, YA novels, and now I have my first biography coming out. So I'm always switching up my genres and trying new things. And then now I'm working on an adult novel. And so I just kind of dip into a lot of things in the writing world. I have a book coming out in September called Codename Badass. And it is the true story of World War II disabled spy Virginia Hall, who was the Gestapo's most wanted spy in France. She's amazing. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about her. In fact, it's so great because usually when I'm talking about my books, you know, it's something, a novel that I've written. And that can feel a little bit awkward or hard to explain because writing a novel is such a personal experience. And then now I just get to tell people about this amazing woman who, you know, is my best friend I've never met. So, How, how did you find out about her? And like, how did you become like called to write this, this book? Yeah, so it was really serendipitous. I have always been obsessed with spies. And I was visiting a friend in DC a few years ago, and she was saying, you know, what do you want to do? And I found out there was an international spy museum there. So I was like, that's what we're doing. Uh, so we went to the museum, which is as awesome as if you're into spies, it's as awesome as you can imagine. And um, there was this little area with uh, like one of those text boxes that they have in museums. And it said, the incredible limping lady. And I was intrigued. And so I read on and it told all about this. It was just a little short bit about this amazing woman named Virginia Hall, who was an amputee when she was a spy in France. She spied for the British and for the Americans. And she armed the French resistance. She trained an army. She escaped over the Pyrenees Mountains with her prosthesis leg, <laughs> like amazing woman. So they had her radio there because she was a radio operator for part of her missions and some passports. And I just, I couldn't stop thinking about her. So I thought I had to write about this woman and I had never written a biography before. And I sat down to write and it was very salty and cursy and basically like a episode of drunk history. And I was like, okay, we're going with this. 
I wrote the biography I've always wanted to read because usually they're really dry. So yeah, that's how it started. And then right when I was writing, this amazing serendipity happened where a few other writers at the same time started writing about her. It was just in the air, like suddenly. And we all found out about her in different ways. I got to go to the CIA. (laughs) It was crazy. Yeah. (laughs) What was it like going to the CIA? It is just like in the movies. There's that logo on the ground. There's the wall of fallen spies with all the stars. You know, you can't bring any electronics in. And it's it's amazing. I mean, I know that sounds kind of weird because the CIA also has a very dark history <laughs> and present. But it was so strange to be let into this world that, you know, you need security clearance to go in there and stuff. And it just was like, Oh, <laughs> that's one of the perks of writing, right? Just getting yeah. to go into these unexplored spaces that are either imaginary or real. So, yeah. And fall down a rabbit hole and see where it takes you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I went to France. I went to her old drop sites where, you know, the Lysander planes would drop in arms and, you know, ammunition and just so many different experiences that it afforded me. So, Writing a biography is very, very hard. Very, very hard. But it's it's been incredible. <laughs> well, okay. So like you said, you have done a lot of YA and adult mm-hmm. literature as well. Mm-hmm. And what was it like switching gears? Did you have to learn new skills to be able to do this? I mean, what was the biggest thing for you in that process? Yeah, it's, um, you know, the biggest thing that the writers that I work with, because other hat is as a writing coach, and probably the number one reason people come to me is because of the inner critic, which includes, of course, fear, self-doubt, comparison, the imposter syndrome, all of that. You would think that writers would come because they're like, oh, I need help with craft, or my book's not working, or I need publishing advice. But even if they don't realize it, they're coming to me because of the inner critic. So that's all of the work we do. So I had a lot of tools to work with that when it came up with this book, which it came up a ton, especially imposter syndrome. I mean, I have an MFA in writing and all that, but I do not speak fluent French. I mean, I can like kind of read French, but I had to go into these archives and read, you know, field reports in French. Thank God for Google Translate, you know. And yes, I've written a master's thesis, but I, but a biography where everything has to be cited and you're writing a woman's life. I mean, the responsibility of getting it right is enormous. I got to meet her niece who is still alive. And, you know, that was really helpful because I felt a real connection with her. Her name's Lorna Catling and, you know, but also a sense of responsibility. Like I'm writing about somebody's family, you know, Mm. and there was a ton of research and, you know, Virginia Hall was disabled and I am not, but, um, she wasn't born that way. She actually literally shot herself in the foot, literally. <laughs> yeah. And so it's been incredible. Just kind of, I mean, of course, have have readers who are disabled to, you know, read for me and everything. But because she wasn't born that way, you know, I was really able to recognize, you know, wow, what if I had done that? What if I had been hunting and literally shot myself in the foot, felt like my whole world had fallen apart? And then could have an example like Virginia Hall to follow. So as I was writing this book, I kept thinking like, okay, this is hard, but you don't have the Gestapo after you. Like you're not 
trying to like be a spy with a prosthetic limb, like, come on, Heather, you can do this, you know? So she just inspired me through the whole process, but the imposter syndrome was real. And I think also because biography is a male dominated field Mm. and I'm purposely, you know, writing this book to be um, really accessible, not like dumbed down or anything. I mean, it's very researched, but I wrote the book that I wanted to read. And I think, um, you know, some people might be like, wow, you can say all the curse words in a biography. Is that okay? And I think it is. I think, I think Dindy, that was her nickname. I think Dindy would have liked it. (laughs) Hey, did her niece say she was kind of salty? Like, I mean, would. Yes. And, and her, the people in the field also said the same, like she was a bad bitch. She just was. (laughs) Like cute in the Lizzo, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I actually quote Lizzo in the book. (laughs) Oh, good. I love that. Okay. Wow. I cannot wait to read this biography. I can't wait till it comes out. I'm so excited. I am. I don't know that I'm into spies per se. I was a boxcar kid kind of (laughs) reader, you know, back in the day. Um, So they had their own little like thing going on. So that's, that's what you've got my head turning about. But (laughs) Harriet the Spy was maybe a little bit past my generation. I'm, I'm trying to think of what spy, you know, maybe what it was. I never saw any female spies. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, that's why I love that's why I love Alias and um, the Americans the show the Americans. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem, right? The most famous fictional spy is James Bond. And Ian Fleming, the creator was um, he worked in naval intelligence during World War Two at the same time as Virginia Hall, actually. Um, But yeah, female spies, you just never hear about. In fact, the the book goes deep into the patriarchy in the CIA. And, um, you know, they're doing a lot to correct that as much as they can. But, you know, percentage wise, there's still, you know, more male operatives, more men in leadership. Um, We only just had our first, you know, director, who you know, Gina Haspel, controversial figure, but the only female director. And then the next director is the man. So, you know, it's still it's still a challenge. And I think one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that they did this report called the Petticoat Panel at the CIA, where, um, you know, they were interviewing people at the CIA about, you know, gender discrimination. And all these male operatives are saying things like crazy things, women don't travel, <laughs> you know, and, and it just like this idea of, you know, women being unfit for field service, when in fact, if you think about it, because of our invisibility, because of our heightened intuition and the way that we constantly have to be protecting ourselves, considering the statistics for rape, actually women are great spies. We've been training for this our whole lives. Wow. I never thought about it that way. That's such a deep thing <laughs> about it. Oh, I love yeah. it. Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Yes, I actually, so I'm moving in the next couple of weeks and I am going through all these boxes and I have journals from kindergarten. So I've been writing my whole life. It's the way that I have always been able to best express myself. 
And it's, it's always been a sanctuary, you know, and I think for so many people that are drawn to writing and of course reading, I feel like it's that harbor in the storm for so many of us. And, you know, I think whether it's journaling or writing stories, it's, it's giving yourself that opportunity to imagine new possibilities. I did not have a great childhood as many people have also experienced family of origin issues. And I feel like that was my lifeline was writing and reading. And I think that's part of what drew me to writing for young adults initially, although of course now I'm also writing for the adult market, but you know, YA over 50% of the readers are adults. So I, mean, I write for all ages. Love YA. It is one of my favorite <laughs> genres. And I am not bashful about saying that. Like it's just so much I when, okay. Maybe not the best writing in the whole world, but I literally at one point in my life took a vacation day to read through the night and then into the next day, the Twilight series. So I mean, yep. it was adult when that happened and like, just bring on the YA. <laughs> that is so many people's YA gateway drug. It was for me too, actually, you know, because I had never, so I had never read I, now I read romance, but I had never read romance as a teen or a kid. You know, my sister used to sneak, you know, my grandma had all these Harlequin romance novels. And my sister would sneak them and read them. And I was like reading Maya Angelou and like, I was a very serious child. Um, and so then I read Twilight and I was like, wait a minute, this experience can happen in a book, <laughs> like this binging experience. Um so yeah, I feel like that's for a lot of people. Twilight is the thing. But the thing about YA, you know, my last book that came out during the pandemic, which was no fun, right during the lockdown, my last book came out It's called Little Universes. And I not so jokingly refer to it as, you know, a, a Dharma talk, essentially, because it's all about, you know, basically being comfortable with impermanence. And it was kind of crazy that it came out during the pandemic because it's all about like, how do you deal with the world falling apart? And when I think about that book, I'm like, yeah, it's, you know, for teens as well, but the concepts in it, you know, I don't think people give teenagers enough credit because I think it goes pretty deep, you know? So um, the bias that sometimes happens with YA, which is much less so these days, I think is, generally unfounded so hmm. yeah. yeah my little wife soapbox <laughs> oh my God, I love YA so much and you know I loved it before Twilight but there was something in Twilight that this like it's like oh YA can also be romance I don't know that it was like like kind of borderline almost dirty romance you know yeah like, yeah and I think for people who are like not typically drawn to the romance genre and like you know extended sexy scenes and who just kind of want a little flavor of romance a little bit of sexiness I feel like it's perfect you know yeah. it's yeah. I don't know brain candy is not the right word because it's a little bit more than that but you know I think you know there's the books that when you're a kid that you'll reread as an adult like the giver or you know like there's mm. certain YA books that just like will always hold that special place in your your heart and then there's book YA that you read as an adult, like the fault in our stars and yeah, things like that. I mean, I think a big thing with, with YA is that it's giving us permission to connect with that part of ourselves that 
we just kind of push past because adolescence is so difficult for most people. And um, my first agent, actually, she she always said that the writers that she has, they're all, as you would say, like kid lit writers. They write from picture book to YA. And she said it was so interesting for her to notice the age at which people wrote, because that is the age that they connect with the most and maybe are even still processing the most. So for me, that is absolutely 17. I had a ton of trauma. I wrote a book called Bad Romance. It was semi-autobiographical about this abusive relationship I had in high school. There's like that sort of edge, that darkness, things to explore. But then, you know, then there's the picture book authors who are just like full of childlike wonder and joy and like the way they look at the world is just like it's so delightful and so it's funny when you go to these conferences you know librarian conferences or whatever and you see like the picture book authors and then like then there's like the YA crowd and we're all like dark and (laughs) you know edgy (laughs) yeah but I do think people are getting a chance to kind of like get some medicine from these books and be and, and heal a little bit and also reconnect with that part of themselves, that's still a part of you. Like, I don't think I've actually, I mean, I have obviously changed a lot since I was 17, but not, I mean, I'm still me. I'm still that person just evolved a little bit, you know? I would, that rings, that feels really true for me as well. And yeah, I mean, I just, and I feel like I could, I love that your last book was called Little Universes because they, but because each book is its own little universe as well. And so, you know, you, we start talking about all of the different YA books that we loved and it's like, that was, they become a piece of you in so many ways and a piece of that universe that you were in that time as well, because it infiltrates itself into the whole rest of your being, I think. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also think that for writers, you know, the gift is that what I always tell the writers I work with is that every book is your teacher, you know, and so the book that you're working on often comes to you when there is something that you kind of need to look at and explore. And when I wrote Little Universes, for example, one of the characters struggles with depression And that is something I struggle with. And she also struggles with issues of self-worth, also something that I was still kind of working through, not the self-worth so much, but the Mm self-regard, right? That, 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 that ability to say like, I am enough, you know, and, and really believe it, not just intellectually say it as some kind of affirmation. And so that book was really my teacher. And as that character worked through that, I worked through that. And then, you know, you, you pass it on to your readers. And I get emails from readers who, you know, along the spectrum, many of whom, you know, will say things like, I was suicidal. And then I read this book and I realized maybe it's going to be okay, which is like, that's why we do what we do, right? And there's a phrase I use in that book about basically it's do right by the miracle. And I think like the work that you're doing the work that there's, you know, so many people out there who are just trying to do right by this miracle of this life that we have and making the most of it, doing that hard inner work and then paying it forward in some way, whether it's writing or I mean, I heard you, you talking about watercolor, you know, like all these different things that we do and that's just paying that forward, you know? I love that. And this kind of leads to my next question. I know that you are 
you're a meditator, you're into mindfulness. And um, as you said, little universes talks about impermanence and those deeper things that we grapple with when we are trying to live maybe by that eightfold path. Or, um, and I'm wondering what brought you to that work? Yeah, basically nervous breakdown. <laughs> um, so I've been a spiritual seeker my whole life. I was actually raised in a very fundamentalist home. Um, and so I actually, you know, had to do a lot of work kind of unraveling from that. And so my seeking took me all over the world and meditation was a part of it, but not consistently. So my husband is a Zen Buddhist. I cheekily refer to him as the Zen master. So he's always been a huge inspiration, but you know, Zen is hardcore. And so I thought, you know, I have this mind that, you know, an agent of mine had said, your mind is like a whirling dervish. And that is what it feels like. I think for a lot of creatives, you know, our imaginations are just going all the time. We're training our brains for story. And then you've got Buddhism that's saying, drop the storyline. <laughs> it's like completely counter to our training as artists. And so, and also, you know, the sense of egolessness or no self, which is also so counter because, you know, my concept of myself is my palette that I write with. So what happened is I got my first book deal and my first book came out and the shine was super off the apple with publishing and all of this stuff came up, this hustling for my worth, you know, as Brene Brown says, and it just literally drove me into the darkest depression I'd ever had. And I went to visit a friend who had a house on the Cape, which is my happy place. And she was like, you need to meditate. And I said, I can't meditate. And she laid me down and she was like, listen to this recording, you know, and it was not my kind of meditation. It was like angels and spirit guides and things like that. But I didn't even know guided meditations existed because my husband's a Zen Buddhist. So I thought I just had to stare at a white wall. He like dragged me to some Korean Zen monastery when we lived there, when we were English teachers. And I was like, it was my personal hell. Meanwhile, the nun is like, I think you were a former monk to my husband. And I'm like, yes, obviously in a former life, he was a monk. I was not, I was probably a criminal. You know? <laughs> and so I just thought meditation wasn't for me. But when my friend, it, you know, showed me a guided way, I was like, mm -hmm. what? And it can be secular. And so I started going to a meditation studio um, in New York City called Mindful, which unfortunately they closed during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But I got to sit with the most incredible teachers in New York. I got, you know, certified eventually to become a meditation teacher and almost immediately saw the benefits to my writing practice, my flow, my focus. But also the way that I like to think about it is, is it helps me elegantly as much as I can navigate those ups and downs of the creative life, whether mm. it's the actual creative act or publishing itself and kind of really pulling apart, apart that, that sense of identification with my creative output or my publishing output in terms of like sales or whatever, and realizing that has nothing to do with my self-worth. And for so long, I equated, you know, how I felt that day or how I felt about myself or my place in the world with how good my writing was or how many books I could sell. And so this practice is like, wow, it's wild. My mind still spins, <laughs> you know, it's hard, but it's worth it. 
You know, I think you're bringing up a really important point and there's a lot of creatives, there's a lot of seekers, there's a lot of makers and entrepreneurs that listen to this. And this theme of equating our self-worth with what we produce is ginormous. I mean, like hand raised, like, of course I've dealt with that too. Of course, it's something that I still like, it's a constant, it's a work in progress to separate myself from my work, my self-worth from what I'm producing and putting out there. But be it if you're a creative and you are like, what's the quality of the work that you're putting out there? Or then if you are a maker, a creative who starts selling your work, it's like, then you start equating your self-worth with, oh, how much money are you making? Or how much did you sell? Or how many books are now out there. Did I make the New York Times bestseller list? Like who wants to talk to me? Like all of those things. And I think that you're right. I think mindfulness is one of the greatest tools that we have in divorcing that concept of our self-worth being associated with how hard we hustle, how much we sell, how much we produce and being worthy in who we are. But unless we take the time and invest in that cushion or that practice it's like we don't get to the good stuff yeah and I think that's the the biggest obstacle for people is they I've had so many people tell me you know I can't meditate and I would say if I can meditate because I have a mind like a whirling dervish I trust me that you can meditate but what I also tell people is it's not you know meditation the kind that I do mindfulness-based is not about relaxing. Sometimes it's relaxing, but it's really about becoming a friend to your mind. And for a writer, I can think of no better thing than to better understand how my mind works to create some objective distance between all this swirl of discursive thought and to connect with my essential self, which is connected in turn to source, which, you know, going back to what I said about how like right now, you know, a few of us are writing about Virginia Hall. I think that's being connected to sort of what's out there right now, that energy, right? And so I think that, you know, as a practice, if you think what's happening on the cushion is what it's about, then that's sort of not totally understanding the totality of what meditation offers. Because for me, it's about what happens off the cushion, right? Yes. Yeah. Being, being comfortable with uncertainty, you know, um, being able to, to just kind of say, okay, like I can't control this. And so Mm. many writers I work with are perfectionists. Control is their number one issue, but there's nothing you can control. You can't control how your writing session is going to go that day. You can create a good container, but you don't know what's going to happen in it. right? Right. And you don't know if the book's going to sell. And if it sells to a publisher, you don't know how many readers are going to buy it. And I think that's where that hustling comes in because things like social media give us this false sense of control. Like, well, if I just post more, Mm. right, then I can control people, you know, look at me, look at me, like buy my thing, sign up for my thing, blah, 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 you know. And then again, it hits that self-worth button. So it's all connected. <laughs> yeah, agreed. And I'll I'll tell folks that mindfulness and that meditation practice it's going to the bank. Like just like what you're saying, mm-hmm. it's not um 
it's not in that moment. You're not like, I mean, normally there are so many thoughts happening when I'm on that cushion and I am Mm -hmm. just trying to not judge and pay attention to what's coming up and, and sit with that. And I never feel like I'm getting benefit in the moment while that is ever like, there is never a time where I'm like, this is fun. I'm happy. I'm doing this. But but where it does, where it does pay off, where I'm able to withdraw from the bank is like when I'm having that really uncomfortable conversation with someone or when I'm sitting down to write and want like need to withdraw. But you know, even when I sit down to write, I think like I pause for a moment to see what's up there. And it's like, I'm, I'm able to then sift through the thoughts because I've had the practice on the mat um, mm-hmm. and kind of hone in to the important ones. But that again is, it's a, it's a result of being in the uncomfortable on the mat. Like it's never a happy place for me there. And I think that's the key is, you know, Pema Chodron, the teacher talks a lot about being comfortable with uncertainty and comfortable with discomfort. And just saying like, hey, this is uncomfortable. And rather than resisting that, which just increases that sense of being stuck and um, frustrated, you know, just sitting with that and being like, okay, you know, this is uncomfortable. And one of my favorite things is when I'm in the writer's seat, you know, I think a lot about the very tools I use on the cushion, like labeling, for example, you know, when you're on the cushion and a thought arises and you acknowledge it thinking and then you let it go. Well, when I'm writing and the inner critic comes up and is like, this book's never going to sell, you know, I'm like, oh, inner critic and go, you know, and I can go back to my writing. And I think just acknowledging and being aware of what's happening, Mm -hmm. because so many writers, that inner critic comes up, they have no tools. And then it's just this spiral, you know, and then they're like, why do you, I have writer's block and I don't even believe in writer's block, you know, but then it gets into that and then they call their writing friends and they say, oh my God, you know, and it's a whole thing. But if you have this practice, it's like this ballast for you, you know? And I think um, there's just so many parallels between what happens on the cushion and off the cushion mindfulness practices and the writer's seat and the writer's life, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, I'm such an evangelist for mindfulness for writers. I, I just could talk about it for. No, I love it. I love it. I mean, this community loves, eats up the mindfulness piece and many of them are writers in some form, um, either writing every day for themselves or aspiring to publish or even some published authors. So this is juicy bits. So you have a, a real specific process that you work with folks on. Can you tell us a little bit about the process? Yeah, I call it you have a process only because I literally have to say that to my writers. And then after we do this work, they say, oh, I have a process. It's just, <laughs> it almost feels like like something like a commercial or something. It's hilarious because it happens every time. Um, but with the writers that I work with, you know, the one of the first questions I always ask is, what's your process? And now I know what their answer is going to be after years of doing this. And they say, I don't have a process. Or they say, I don't know, it just happens. Or, you know, I have a muse and sometimes she comes and hangs out with me. Mm-hmm. And um, other times they're trying to put on other people's processes. So they read a craft book. They might even read a blog post I wrote and they try to put on my process or 
you know, uh, the story genius process or whatever the book is that they're reading. And while crossbooks are super helpful, the problem is, is that it takes away a writer, if it's too dependent, it takes away a writer's ability to step into their own personal power mm. and to recognize that they already have a process. They already have tools that they're employing, whether or not they're aware of it, that, you know, orient them in story, that ground them when they get stuck, that get them unstuck, that help them have flow or rediscover flow if they the well runs dry a little bit. So what we do is it's, I basically go through a dialogue with them in which I basically just keep saying, and then what? And then what do you do? And then what happens? And what happens is my writers discover that they have a very specific way that they prep the pump, so to speak, to write. And then they have a way that they orient or drop into story. And that's my favorite part. Every write, and they never realize they do this. Every writer I talk to is something different too. I'm kind of a collector of processes. So, you know, one writer might say after talking like, oh my gosh, I always start with dialogue. Like the flow doesn't start until my characters are talking. Or another writer might say, oh my gosh, it's physical action. Every single chapter starts with my character physically embodied and mm. doing something. So it's all different ways. And I have these archetypes that I've kind of identified. And then through that, what I do is once I figure out what this writer's natural process is, then we work on tools to amplify what they're doing and then maybe revise the things that aren't supporting them. Usually what's not supporting them, though, is like not not good writer hygiene in the writer's cave, right? So, you know, having their phone in the room when they're writing or not setting good boundaries around their creativity with themselves or others not employing mindfulness when they're stuck, you know? And so we look at ways that, okay, well, when that inner critic comes up, how do we work with that, you know? But it's so cool because it empowers these writers to know that they have a process. And then that authority shows up on the page because a writer who is confident in herself and what she's doing and feels like I am a writer, I have a process, that shows up on the page with stronger voice, stronger craft. So it's this really delicious kind of holistic process. It's my favorite thing to do with writers. And we do it with revision too. You know, it's a little bit different people, the way they revise. But, you know, it's great because it brings in all the things I love. You know, it brings mm -hmm. in craft, story, mindfulness. It brings in side writing, which I'm a huge proponent of, exploratory writing, feeling the well. So I do this thing called a writer's Sabbath. So every Saturday is my writer's Sabbath and I don't do anything that day. That is my day. Now I don't have children. So I recognize for some people that's a little bit harder, but I'm really big on taking that time to fill the well because half of our problems as writers is that we're writing on fumes. We're just completely on empty, right? And so getting really intentional about that, I think is really important. So yeah, we go through this whole process and then I just ask them to also be really attentive to what's happening in the writer's seat after we, you know, go through this dialogue. So I'm developing a course right now for people that don't just work one-on-one -on -one with me because I'm like, this is too good. I have to share it, you know, but, and you can see, so you can figure that out on your own or do it in dialogue with a friend or something. Um, lots of like support materials and little modules and lectures, you know, that are going to go in that. But, you know, the, at the core of it is just recognizing 
bringing that mindfulness to the writer's seat. So if you get stuck saying, oh, okay, I'm stuck. Let's walk it back. What happened before I got stuck? I was in flow and then I got stuck. And that gap, Mm. you figure out what happened. Wow. You can work on it. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. And you share so many nuggets too on your newsletter, right? So can you share with folks some of the things that they might find on your newsletter by signing up? Yes. Every month I choose a word that kind of guides the work that I do. And I typically, we're taking a break for the summer, but I typically lead a little gathering, which I actually think you have a thing called gathering. I love that word gathering. Me too. Um, Yeah. So it's so cozy. So I have this thing called The Well, which is a writer's community. And so we gather once a month and it's 90 minutes and we connect about that word and I share exercises and we go deep. But my newsletters are themed around that word. So this month, the word was embodied. And I'm so into being connected to my body as an artist. And I feel like it is ground zero for the work, the inner work and the shadow work that we need to do to really come into our own as artists. And I love sharing practices in my newsletter, very practical things of like, here's something you can try. And then, you know, giving people that opportunity to have a little practice and to have a word to kind of inspire and guide them. So, you know, I've shared about, I love the book Burnout, about the um, breaking the, unlocking the stress cycle. Um, Emily Nagoski is the writer and her sister. And it's really looking at, you know, what's happening in the body right now and what can I do to listen to my body better, right? Um, Martha Beck's new book, The Way of Integrity, also talks a lot about this thematic focus because especially I think as a woman, you know, really connecting to that gut feeling and trusting that because the mind, as we know in mindfulness, is always going to, you know, tell us what the ego wants to hear. And those little, if you've ever done like parts work in therapy, you know, those different parts are going to say like, you know, your your little scarcity devil is going to say, oh no, there's not enough, there's not enough. But maybe your gut is like, everything's fine, you know? And so really being able to kind of make decisions based on that felt sense and trusting that more. So that's something I talked a lot about this past month, but But yeah, and then in my newsletter, I have something I call the rough draft, which is just like a monthly check-in that people can download and just kind of check in with their writing process. How's it going? What's working? What needs some revision? You know, what support can you get? Kind of having those those moments of check-in. And then there's craft support and lots of meditation downloads and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I love as I was telling you before we we jumped on, I I love writing my newsletter. I feel like it's just, I love teaching, you know, I'm also a professor, so that's part of it, but I just, I love sharing and ah. learning. <laughs> so rich. That's so rich. Well, final question for you. How do you live a life of abundance? Okay. That question is amazing. And I want to journal about it forever. <laughs> I think for me, it really comes to appreciating and supporting my imagination. I think just like a mindfulness or meditation practice, your your imagination is something that is always there for you. And I know, you know, with some of the challenges I had growing up, and we talked earlier about, you know, writing and reading as a sanctuary, 
And I feel like that's what our imaginations are. And that is a muscle that you can work. I tell myself a story before I go to bed every night, head on the pillow. I I make up a story, like, just like when I was a little girl, I've been doing this my whole life, you know, Mm -hmm. that works the imagination. Um, But I think the great thing about the imagination is whether or not you're a writer, is that it's this invitation that you give yourself to imagine things being a different way. So things aren't working for you. And you've really been working out that imagination, feeling the well, then there's more clarity available to you. There's more possibility. And I think that's why art is so important, because it gives us that opportunity to immerse our imaginations in something really, really rich, good nutrients that our own possibilities can grow out of. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's the abundance, because no matter where I am in my life, what my circumstances are, nobody can take that away from me. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, when I die, I guess, but maybe not. Reincarnation might be a thing. Who knows? Right. (laughs) But yeah, the imagination and it's free and you don't need any fancy equipment for it. And nobody can freaking market it to you. It is yours and you already have it. And oh, I love that. (laughs) Heather, thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing everything with us today. It's been a pleasure having you on. Oh, thank you so much for holding space for me. A huge thank you to you for tuning in today. Let's do it again next week. In the meantime, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you know a woman who would love this episode, can you share it with her right now? Just text her the link and be sure to let her know why this episode is a must listen. Remember, sharing is caring, so spread the love. Thank you so much for being a part of this Yoke and Abundance community. I do it all for you, and I hope these episodes make you feel seen, heard, and loved. Now, a huge thank you to our sponsor, Abby Gibb, and her Media Visibility Accelerator. It's seriously a phenomenal, game-changing course. Thank you to Ira Sterling of Julia Sound Recording for our theme music, and thank you to my editor, to Monty Johnson of FX Media for his work on today's episode. Keep creating, making, and sharing it with the world because that is true abundance.